0: Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to thank you for tuning into this week's sermon, which is from our current sermon series called Our Aim, as we look at the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois, at scmoline.com.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 4, 1 through 14. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads, and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out by your sight from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders." So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that they were repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be crossed, they were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it and we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, "'The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. "'There is too much rubble. "'By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall.' "'And our enemies said, "'They will not know or see till we come among them "'and kill them and stop the work.' "'At that time the Jews who lived near them "'came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Um, I've been thinking about making some changes around here at Sacred City. Uh, some, nothing big, um, but you, you know in baseball, it's October, uh, baseball, the, the the Major League Baseball postseason's underway. If you like baseball, you're into that, not, not so much for me. But one of the things that they got going on in baseball is they've got walk-up music. So when the batter's going up to the plate, they've got this music that plays, fills the stadium. It's kind of like hype music. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, okay. So like, I'm thinking about doing that as I come up to preach my sermons, okay? Not so much for hype, because that's like the worship time that we have together, that the Lord stirs my soul for that. I don't need the hype music. But, but kind of like to give you a little teaser of where we're going to go uh, with our sermon today. Now, if I, if I were to start doing that this week, uh, the song that I would choose is won't Back Down" by Tom Petty, um, because I think that that song captures the attitude, the spirit, of Nehemiah in, in Nehemiah chapter four verses one through 14. Now, what we've been seeing throughout the sermon series, we're calling "Rebuilding the Ruins." is that God has called Nehemiah to do just that thing, to go back to his homeland of Jerusalem, to rebuild the ruins. Now, uh, decades before this, King Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonian king came, swept through, destroyed the temple, ruined the homes, destroyed the city walls, just left the city in shambles. And God has placed it upon Nehemiah's heart to go back to his hometown and rebuild the ruins. And as Nehemiah starts getting to work, as he puts his hand the plow and calls people to join him in this. He's doing this good and God-appointed work. Guess what happens not shortly after? Resistance comes. The opposition sets in. The critics get a little bit louder. And that's how it tends to go. When God calls his people to a good work, we need to realize that rarely is that good work easy. We're not just going to slide right into it. There's going to be difficulty and challenge. There's a, there's a, a, a hardness to the task. But, but on top of the difficulty of the ta- task is this, the reality is that we will face opposition as we set out to do hard things for Jesus. Now, this is true of church plants, it's true of building Christian schools and nonprofits. It's true of building a godly home. It's true of doing business in a society and a culture that is plagued by darkness. And, and it's true of, of godly Christians wanting to put their foot into the political sphere. Resistance will always come. It's not a matter of if, but when. And what intensity. What Nehemiah shows us here in chapter four is where this resistance tends to come from. And as he shows us where it comes from, what he he wants to help us see is the tactics of kingdom resistance. And Nehemiah gives us an incredible example here, an example that we need to follow today. Rather than caving, Nehemiah shows us how to remain faithful under fire so that by God's grace and by God's provision that we can see the kingdom of heaven, that we can see God's mission advance right here in our midst, right here in the quad cities and far beyond. And so I I want to invite you into that with us this morning. If you want to grab your Bible, I hope you brought your Bible today. Grab it, open it up, Gold Star, if you did bring it. Otherwise, there's a pew Bible in front of you. The words will be back on the screen here. Now, typically, we go verse by verse through chapters of the Bible. Um, Last week, it was a little bit different. We just had a bunch of names. So we didn't quite do that and get back to it this week. We're going to go verse by verse uh, through these 14 verses and see what is going on in this story. So here we are, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they even finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish, and burned ones at that. Verse three, Tobiah, the Ammonite was beside him and said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Now to get to this moment in time, we have to see what's going on. So first God gave Nehemiah this vision to go back home in chapter one. Chapter two Nehemiah cast this vision, when he sees the destruction of Jerusalem, he casts a vision to the people of Jerusalem, says, we cannot carry on like this. We have to do something about the condition of our city. And what we see is an overwhelming response from the people of God, where they they hear the vision, they catch the vision, they rise up, and they begin to rebuild. They say, let us strengthen our hands for this good work set before us. Now, last week we saw in chapter three, the division of labor that took place. We saw families, family units working together to contribute to the mission of God. But as they do this, it's not long before their enthusiasm, which was overwhelming, might I add, is met by opposition. Now, opposition is not anything new in this story. If you go back to the beginning of the story in, in Ezra, Uh, We saw that was very much a part of of Ezra's journey, well, Zerubbabel and then Ezra's journey as they're trying to rebuild the altar and to the temple and start building their homes. We saw that in Ezra chapter four. And then again, we see a glimpse of it in Nehemiah chapter two as as Nehemiah lands there in Jerusalem. And in fact, the, the people that we see opposing Nehemiah in chapter two are the same people that we see here opposing Nehemiah in chapter four. They're given a name these are real people that are critical of what's going on. We see this this guy named Sanbalat, who's a Samaritan. We see Tobiah, who's an Ammonite. Uh, In in chapter two of Nehemiah, this guy named Geshem, who's an Arab, Uh, he's mentioned and and he implied here again. And what we see that is through this time is that they have been recruiting other uh, people with, with critical voices. We see this with with uh, Sanballat, he, he's saying in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, he's, he's bringing his critical spirit and, and trying to, uh, like a virus, make it spread through those people who's he's interacting with. And what we see that it's, it's pretty effective, actually. It's strange how a critical word can oftentimes take root and spread much faster than an encouraging word. And as he goes about sharing his opinions about what's going on with the wall in Jerusalem, we see more people coming on board. And verse 7 it points to the fact that there are Ashdodites who join in and do not approve of what's going on in, in Jerusalem. Now, if you're not familiar with Middle Eastern geography, which I would guess most of us are not necessarily, um, but all of these people, the Samaritans, the Ammonites, the Arabs, the ashdodites are all geographical neighbors of the people of Jerusalem. And so what we're seeing is that this this opposition that the Jews are facing is an external non-Jewish opposition. God's people are stationed on an island in a sea of adversaries, north, south, east, west, all over the place. What we see here is an example of the unifying power of a common enemy. These guys, the thing that brings them together is that they don't like what's going on in Jerusalem. Now, we saw previously in chapter two that the tactics of the opposition. In, in chapter two, um, Sanballat and others tried using political threats. They, they accused Nehemiah and his uh, comrades of resisting, of rebelling against the king. Now, of course, that threat didn't work because they had the papers to prove that the king was on their side. He was endorsing this work of, of rebuilding. And so they got to work. They didn't let the opposition, that, that, first little, that first little jab didn't stop them. They get to work and start building. And as they start building, the, the, the stones are piling up. The wall is it's not just in a rubble heap anymore. It's starting to take the shape of a wall. And Sanballat and Tobiah and then the others, they see this activity and it has a powerful grip on them. We're told in verse one that Sanballat was angry and greatly enraged. And what he does out of this anger and, and rage, he's, he launches a smear campaign. He, he begins to take his criticisms to the public sphere. It's, it's public ridicule. In our day, it'd be somebody going on the internet, leaving, leaving a nasty Yelp review or, or blasting somebody on the internet like that. It's a smear campaign that's not meant to be defended. They're throwing shade. He's, he's, he's accusing them of being incapable, incompetent. You guys are wimps. You've got shoddy work. Tobiah's like, it's so shoddy that if even a little fox were to run up there, the whole thing's just gonna fall apart. So they're wagging their fingers at the Jews saying, you guys are a bunch of fools. These jeers and insults, aren't just circulating among the neighbors. These jeers, these insults, this ridicule is meant to land on the ears of the Jews. That they're trying to get in their heads. Now verse four indicates that that it actually works, People, the people of Jerusalem are hearing this negative stuff that's being said about them. Nehemiah is aware of the criticisms and the insults. Now we all know that words can be a powerful deterrent, right? Words, words jab, words, words punch hard, and, and sometimes it can knock the wind out of us. A dissenting voice can stop you in your tracks and get you to question everything. Whether it's about a major life decision, the kind of lifestyle that you choose to live, or even like something as silly as an outfit or the kind of music that you put on the radio. Right? Those, those jabs, those dissenting voices can stop you and get you to question everything. But, but sometimes... It takes even less than an outright dissenting voice. It could simply be a lack of affirmation. It could be an off-color comment that could be taken one way or the other, but you certainly hear it and you take it this way. Or even an unenthusiastic affirmation. Right, date night comes. How do I look great, babe? The guy's like in his phone. Yeah, you look great. <laughs> Back to the closet. You know, that's how it goes. Now I have a real life example of this. Uh, Back in our first home uh, on Rock Island, we uh, we had this cute little house. We loved it. Started our family, and I had this neighbor who was really nosy. He just always had an opinion. Nice guy, but he tried to avoid him a little bit. And one day he came over. I was doing yard work, and I like doing yard work. And he's like, "Oh, hey, yeah, things are looking good." He's like, "You know, are you uh you planning on leaving those weeds in your grass?" No. I grew up on a farm, and so if it was green, it counted as grass. That's just kind of what it was, all right? You mow it down all the same. But that guy's little criticism of what was going on in my yard led to me taking out a spade, pinpointing, my wife's losing it over here, pinpointing every little patch of these crisscross grass weeds that I thought was grass, but he obviously didn't, Excavated them. So at one point, I have patches of dirt just spread throughout my yard and I seeded it and all that stuff. But here's the kicker, guys. You ever seen that Google Earth car that drives around? Yeah. It captured my yard in that pristine, patchy thing. So this guy's criticism of my yard has been enshrined on the internet. Hopefully, they put up new, new photos since then. I think they update it. But that was just one of those moments where. That little critic it wasn't even criticism, it was just a question. Hey, are you going to leave those weeds in your yard? Caused me to act like a crazy person. Because it's easy, it's easy to get rattled by the critic. It is, right? It's, it's so easy, in fact, to, to let that one voice be so loud in your life that it can stop you in your tracks. The thing that you had conviction about, the thing you had clarity on at one moment, you now, you're, you're left scratching your head. What do I do from here? I think this is part of the natural human tendency. But what we see with Nehemiah is not that. Nehemiah demonstrates something completely different than that, that natural default tendency that we have to, to let the critic to win us over with just that one little jab. Nehemiah hears the criticisms and the dude is not shaken. He doesn't, he doesn't reel back. He doesn't alter the plans of building the wall. He presses on. Now, as the people are talking about him, talking to him, what we see from Nehemiah is that he doesn't talk back. What he does is he talks to God. Now, that's the first thing that we need to see that we should do when we're under fire. We need to drop to our knees and pray. Now, listen. There are instances in scripture where God appoints a critical voice to bring about his goodwill. So there might be times where, though there's a critical voice, we need to ask God, is this this from you? Do I need to receive this as a God-given rebuke? But if you have clarity, if the word of God states what you're about and you're given your life and faithfulness to that thing, what we do is we we bolster up confidence. We go to God and say, I know what you told me to do. I'm gonna stay Stay true to that. Now, this is exactly what Nehemiah does when he starts to pray in verse four and five. He says, hear, O our God, for we are despised. So he, he hears the taunts. Turn turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Now, this is sort of a, a turning of the tables that Nehemiah is praying for, because because just years before, the Jews were the ones that got plundered and they were captives. Nehemiah is praying, Lord, turn the tables. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now that is a high, octa- high octane prayer. That is a prayer that is in the vein of the imprecatory Psalms, the Psalms where you read them and you wonder, can that dude say that? Is that okay? Is that Christianly of him to pray that for his enemies? Because what Nehemiah is asking for right now is, is God to act justly? That God would bring judgment upon his enemies, that the the tables would be turned, that that they would pay for their own sin. This is, this, is, this is strong language, right? Now, it might look like Nehemiah is overreacting here. That This might look like an emotional, like sort of just like a lashing out, like a retaliation that Nehemiah has as he hears this criticism that he's taking it too personal. But what you have to see here is Nehemiah's prayer is not about his hurt feelings. Nehemiah's prayer is not about a fear of failure. Nehemiah has the ability to see through the smoke and see what's really going on here. What's really going on here is what, what the psalmist in Psalm 2 points to. He asks, why Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. See, Nehemiah knows that this isn't about him. The people aren't mad at him in and of himself. People are raging against God. The hostility the builders face isn't ultimately directed to them. It's ultimately directed toward God. They are hostile toward God. Now, now, the apostle Paul speaks of this in Romans 8. He says this, Romans 8 verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. So in other words, those who live according to the flesh want nothing to do with the things that God's about. They set their minds on the flesh. Let me find my spot. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit, the things of God. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What we see here, these neighboring folks, they're outside of the covenant. They're not part of God's covenant community. They want nothing to do with God. They're raging against him. Their minds are set on the flesh. And when, when a mind is set on the flesh, it is hostile toward God. And when a mind is hostile toward God, it will be opposed to God's purpose and God's people. See, this is why uh, persecution has been a a very relevant factor in the life of the church throughout the world. And we've had it decent in in previous centuries. It's getting more and more difficult to be a faithful Christian in this cultural moment. But there are places in North Korea, in China, and go to the South America, there are places that is painfully difficult to be a Christian because there are enemies of God who are opposed to God, opposed to God's purpose, and opposed to God's people. Now, Nehemiah doesn't take it personally, but God does. God is personally offended by this, by the raging of the nations. Now, go back to Nehemiah here. You see this at the end of the prayer. Nehemiah explains why he's praying this way. At the end of verse five, he says, for they, the nations, have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So certainly the builders are catching some flack here, but ultimately the hostility is directed toward God and it's greatly angering God. God takes it personally when his mission is is thwarted and his people are persecuted. Now we see the same exact thing taking place in the book of Acts when the apostle Paul is converted. So the apostle Paul, if you're not familiar, the apostle Paul who went on to to write most of the New Testament that we have, most of the epistles, the apostle Paul was at one point a God hater. He was hostile toward God. And you saw that hostility worked out in the fact that he hated the church, he hated the people of God, and he hated the mission of the church, and he he made it his own personal task, his own responsibility to stop what the church was doing, and so he goes to this hub, it's like a city center that like all roads go through this, and he was gonna once and for all stop the Christians, persecute them, have them stoned, hung, put them to death, whatever it was, just like he did with Stephen when he held Stephen's cloak. And as Paul is on his way to set up post there, the Lord, the resurrected Jesus, meets him, strikes him down, blinds him. He says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He's like, wait, I don't even know who you are. Talking to the resurrected Jesus, I don't even know who you are. Well, Jesus Takes it personally. When Paul is persecuting the church, his people, persecuting the mission, Jesus takes that personally. So personally, he says, Why are you persecuting me? Not the church. Jesus, says, why are you persecuting me? It's because God is wrapped up in his mission, God is wrapped up in his people. This is why Nehemiah has the confidence to pray this prayer. And so he prays this prayer, and guess what? He presses on with the mission. He drops to his knees in prayer and says, all right, amen, time to go. That, and we see this in verse 6. Praise, verse 6, so we built the wall, period. <laughs> so we built the wall, Period. And we see the progress and all the wall was joined together to half its height. So they've made great progress in the sense that remember last year, it's like two and a half, two and a half miles of, of wall, some places, 40 feet high, eight feet wide, giant stones, two to eight tons a piece. They're making progress. They're, they're cooking here. And Paul says, or Paul, Nehemiah says, why? For the people had a mind to work. What we're seeing here is the residual of the excitement that that was able to sort of um, overcome these first waves of criticism, the first waves of opposition, the first waves of this adversarial sort of interaction. The people had a mind to work. Or you could say like this, the people had a heart for God and his mission. And so the mission continues. The mission advances as they're under fire and halfway done with the wall. But as they give themselves to rebuilding, that, that sort of, that boldness, that courage to go back to it is rebutted with increasing hostility. So it's not just that the people are, are like mildly offended, mildly dislike God, but we see this, this intensification. It's like somebody's cranking it to 11 here. We see this in verse seven and eight. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, right? Their plan didn't work. And that the breaches were beginning to be closed. They were not just angry, but very angry. Now look at this in verse eight. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion. So at first it was all verbal assault. It was all just like, we're going to say something critical to get him to stop. Now it's like, yeah, we're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to make this physical. We're going to start swinging fists. Now, again, we see the boldness of, of Nehemiah in response to this in verse 9. He says, and we prayed to our God. So there again, boom, hits, hits his knees. We prayed to God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. What we see here from Nehemiah is both prayer and action. We've we've known this from chapter three, that Nehemiah is a strategist. Nehemiah can think ahead. He's a a leader. He's a visionary thinker. And so in order to protect the work, to protect the people, he sets out protection and a defense here in chapter nine. It's like, we're going to be ready. They They may come. They may not come. We don't know. They're certainly threatening to come, and so we're going to be ready. So he, he positions them. He tells them, get ready for this. They set a guard. Well, it escalates again. The hostility escalates again in verse 11. It says, and our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come along, till we come along them and kill them and stop the work. Do you see this escalation taking place here? At first, we're just gonna lob insults at them. Now we're gonna beat them up a little bit. Now we're gonna kill them. Now we want them dead. They want blood. They want to make sure that this project never again gets up and going, that there's no more progress in the rebuilding. And What we see again, the boldness, confidence of Nehemiah, knowing that he's been assigned to this task by God as he works up a defense strategy in verse 13. Now that this this one goes a little bit further than just setting up guards. He says this so in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall. So we got people that are all around the perimeter in the open places I station the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Nehemiah has a strategy, a defense strategy, not just defensive, but ready to to meet that resistance with resistance. Nehemiah and the people are at the ready. There's this undeniable intensity of hostility toward God that's on display here. And that hostility towards God, towards his mission, towards the church, has not evaporated with time. It's still very much a present reality. In fact, Matthew 10, Jesus warns us that as followers of him, we will be hated on account of him. That just by bearing the name of Christ, there will be people who hate you. Darkness will want to rage against the kingdom of light. Now, Nehemiah has real enemies, flesh and blood. The Ammonites, the Arabs, the Adadites, the Samaritans. But one thing the Apostle Paul makes perfectly clear is that our, our enemy, our battle, is not fought against flesh and blood. It might seem like it. It might seem like the kingdom of darkness is using people to meet its ends, and it is. But but ultimately, the battle is not against flesh and blood. What we're seeing here is a collision of two kingdoms. what we're experiencing, in fact, right now, as we gather to worship Jesus, as we lift high the name of our resurrected Lord and Savior, there is a war that's taking place here, a cosmic war. The kingdom of darkness is pushing against the kingdom of light. Not by flesh and blood, but the powers and principalities of darkness. And we cannot win this, this war, this battle with physical swords, with guns, with bombs. It is a spiritual fight. It's a spiritual battle that, ra- that rages, and what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 is that, that to fight this spiritual battle, we need spiritual armor, that we must put on the armor of God. He says this in, in six, Ephesians 6, verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now he tells us what this is. What is the armor of God? It's not just this metaphorical sort of like spiritual hocus pocus thing. Stand therefore, verse 14, having fastened on the belt of truth. If you don't want to be put to shame, like your drawers dropped, you got to have the belt of truth. Put on the belt of truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, Christian, are you suited up? Are you, are the belt of truth fastened? Is the helmet of of salvation secured on your head? The breastplate of righteousness? The shield of faith that extinguishes all the darts of the, the evil one? And are you wielding the sword of truth? Right, the word of God. Between prayer and the Word of God. Those two things are linked here, which tells us that we ought to be praying the Word of God, that we can stand firm against the taunts of the evil one. We are called to rise up, church. There are, there are real external threats here to us as a church, to the mission of God, and just overall the hostility. Toward God, we, we must stand firm and not cower in fear. But the external opposition that we see from the kingdom of darkness, if you want to talk in spiritual metaphor that way, wasn't the only resistance that Nehemiah faced. There, there, was, there was the external resistance, but there was also internal resistance. Because not everyone shared the courage of Nehemiah. As the threats came, as the insults were lobbed, not everyone was resolute. Not everyone stood in courage like Nehemiah. And we start to see things falling apart. At first, we see this in Nehemiah 4 verse 10. In Judah, it was said, so this is is like friendly fire here. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we are not able to rebuild the wall. Do you see what's going on here? The accusations of the external opposition has infiltrated its way into the internal cohort of workers. They're starting to to, to have those lies embedded in their their heads, their hearts, and they're starting to believe it. Say, I don't know if we can do this. This is too too big. Our strength is failing Those murmurs of imminent failure have breached the builders. And now they're starting to think like they're enemies. Now this this too escalates. And this this wondering of, can we do it? Can we pull through? Turns into incessant calls for waving the white flag. You see this in verse 12. At the time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, They said repeatedly, you must return to us. What are they saying? Guys, you got to knock it off. You're causing too much of a scene. People clearly don't like what you got going on here. You need to just wave the white flag, tuck your tail between your leg, and just kind of scoot along. And maybe you'll get get away with your life. Now, what is going on here? What's going on inside the, the camp of Israel? we're seeing here is a failure of nerve. What we're seeing here is a, a shared state of anxiety. Now, there are real and looming threats out there, but those external threats have generated internal turmoil, right? this restlessness. I, I, I'm confident we're all familiar with the concept of anxiety, what it feels like. For, for me... When I sense anxiety coming my way, it feels, like, um, it feels like my heart cramps. You ever have like a calf cramp in the middle of the night, right? And it just like jolts you. That's what it feels like in my chest. The fear, the worry, just this, this constant strenuous, strenuous hum that just sort of buzzes on. And it feels heavy. It's no wonder why it can cause heads to droop and knees to buckle. And if left there for too long, can leave people leaving the mission behind. The shared anxiety. It, so it's one thing if anxiety is, is isolated just to me, but if we've got a group of people who share the same anxiety, then anxiety is a powerful force to be reckoned with. It's dominant and crushing, and if unchecked, this anxiety can de- derail kingdom advance like this. But where does this anxiety come from? What, what, what causes it? What's the source of this anxiety? Now, it's not merely the fact that there are external threats out there. I mean, that, that sort of is like the billows that sort of takes that little flame and the flicker and turns into a massive flame. And that, that's part of the equation but the thing that causes this underlying anxiety is a doubt that God is faithful through life's joys and life's trials. It comes down to a distrust that God is who he says he is and God will do what he says he will do. It's a matter of forgetting what God has said in the light is still true in the dark. See, that's the thing that allows that anxiety to just sort of simmer and bubble up and then certainly boil over. Now, it all revolves around a fear of what people are going to think and say about me or what they'll do to me. that's, That's the fear that's driving the, the people from the land of, of Judah to come in and say, you guys got to knock it off. They're afraid of what's going to happen to them. Now in our day and age to remain a, a true and faithful Christian, adhering to the word of God in its fullness, not picking and choosing, not twisting the word of God to get at what we want it to say, but to take the word of God as it's laid out for us plainly and to live by that, the culture is going to look at us and say we're intolerant. We might get canceled. For us to stand as Christians and profess that the only way to the Father is through Jesus in the view of the society is narrow-minded. How can you be so ignorant? Right, Or, or if you wanna adhere to the fact That since the beginning of creation, marriage has been and always will be one man and one woman in covenant marriage for life. Oh, well, the times have changed and God's changed his mind. No, he hasn't. God is the same today as he was then. To be anything other than that would make God a liar. To say that Jesus is not just Lord over the church, but Lord over the cosmos. See, you, you hold to these biblical teachings and you are going to cause an, event, an offense. Truth does that. Truth is offensive to a culture that is hostile towards God. And we, when we let that fear of, of being labeled as bigots or prudes or narrow-minded or whatever... When we let that fear run our lives, what's going to happen is we're going to run away from the mission. If we want to run away from the mission, we're running away from God. Rather than walking by faith, in certainty of God being who he says he is, we start to cower in fear. I, th- I think that this is the greatest threat that the church faces today. There, there are great powers outside of the church that, that are working against the kingdom of darkness as throwing punches left and right. But I think the thing that will neutralize, render the church useless is this, if we allow this, this sort of uh, chronic anxiety to just carry us through all of life. If the church is going to rise up into our God-giving calling to, to step up into the glory and power in which we've been called to, we need to learn to speak to our anxiety rather than let our anxiety boss us around. This is why Jesus invi- invites us to cast our anxieties upon him, to take them to Jesus. Jesus has a word for him. He'll tell them what's up. We need to learn to speak to our anxieties and rather than letting our anxieties boss us around. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does in verse 14. Look at this. He, he sees the people. He sees, we've got a threat on this side, we've got a threat here. He sees what's going on. And in verse 14, and I looked and I rose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people. Now this passage here um, one commentator says this, when, when, he, when Nehemiah says, and I look and I rose, he says, I look and I saw the anxiety of the people. I, I saw this, this simmering buzz of fear and cowardice. He looked and he saw them and he said, to this, said this to them. He said, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. You know what Nehemiah does here? He takes the anxieties of the people. He takes the opposition from the outsiders. He lumps them together and he stacks them against God. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. The, the King James Version says, Remember the Lord who is great and terrible. Now, what, what is Nehemiah getting at here? Nehemiah is pointing to the reality that God is far more glorious, way more weighty than anything that humanity, the kingdom of darkness can pile up. He reminds the people of God's greatness and power and justice. And he helps us see that the reason why we fear people, the reason why we want to cower and and back down and let our anxiety drive us away is because we are not seeing God for who he is. People have become big and God has become small, but the more we go into the word of God, we see this flipped. The word of God shows us a great and grand and terrible God. And the smallness of people. And we see that reality that will kill our anxiety. See, this is what Jesus says. Um, Back in Matthew 10, verse 28. He says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's saying God has way more power. The opposition, the anxiety is bringing a knife to a gunfight. And so what he tells us is that we do not need to fear them because when we, have, when we fear God rightly, as, as is the beginning of wisdom, we are enabled to live courageously. Now, there are, there are two kinds of fear here that, that we need to identify here and, and help, help sort of parcel out a little bit. First is, is fear of God in the sense that he is, like the prayer that was prayed earlier, that the justice would come, that God's wrath would be expressed. There is wrath. The nation's Rage. There are those who are hostile toward God, guys like Sanballat and and Tobiah, who will have to answer for their sins. And until Christ came, we were among them. But for those who are in Christ, those who trust Jesus, this judgment, this, this wrath, has already been issued. The the, the cup of of wrath has been poured out upon Christ there on the cross. So we don't have to deal with our sins the way that, that Nehemiah prays that his enemies would. But Jesus absorbed that for us through his death on the cross. That we are then forgiven and blessed and upheld by the God of justice, who's also a God of mercy. But seeing God in his might and power do such a wonderful thing like that generates in us a reverence, and a reverence that doesn't compromise the justice, the holiness, the power of God, but reveres it for what it is. This is the kind of fear that Christians should operate in. We see God rightly. And as we see God rightly, what we can see is that God is for us, not against us. In fact, the way that we know that is that God did not withhold his own son, but gave him generously on our behalf. And if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is glorious, what can wage war on him? We're told no weapon formed against him will prosper Now that doesn't stop Satan. That doesn't stop the kingdom of darkness from swinging punches. We know that because Satan tried his hardest with Jesus on the cross. See, the the spirit of hostility that we saw in the adversaries is what Satan was trying to do. He's trying to kill Jesus, snuff him out, stop this kingdom advancement. And for three days, it looked like he won. But on the third day, Christ was raised by the power of God. There's resurrection power that overcomes the darkness. See, that's the only kind of power that can overcome the darkness. It's not a political power. It's not simply right legislation. There has to be resurrection power. And if God has raised Christ, he promises that he will raise us too. But not only that, we're told that the power of God that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in us at this moment. See, church, this is where our courage comes from. This isn't a self-generated thing. This isn't like a, a hype session. This is the power of God being implanted in us to give ourselves to the work that God has called us to. And the more that we walk by faith, the more we stand on the word of God and the promise of God and give ourselves to advancing to the kingdom of heaven, the world is going to swing back. Darkness is gonna to try to stop it. And even our flesh can rear its ugly head, right? The anxiety, the fear, the things where when our, our, our minds are set on the flesh, but God is at work in us through his resurrection power to sanctify us and to send us back out on his mission so that we would not stall out as we face opposition, but press on. For we have all that we need in Christ Jesus to carry on. So let us, let us give ourselves to this sacred city. Let's fight the good fight of faith. Be, be realistic, there are adversaries out there of the kingdom of darkness, but we are not defenseless. Our, our hands are not tied. Take courage and be prepared. Put on the armor of God like Nehemiah. Give yourself to the task of, of raising godly, uh, a godly home, creating, building a godly home. Give yourself to the task of, of investing in the local church. Of building godly businesses and, and nonprofits and seeing a Christian education take root in our city. Give yourself to these things because it's worth it. But as we give ourselves to these things, we need to take courage. We need courage. And so as long as today is called today, let us encourage one another to this end. The work is hard, the work is opposed, but glory awaits those who are steadfast. So let us remain faithful to the Lord. Father, we thank you that you have shown us uh, what steadfastness looks like in your son, that you have taught us what it looks like to live a righteous and blameless life under fire. You've shown us what it looks like to advance the kingdom of heaven, to wage the war that is uh, around us. Lord, help us to step into this in fullness of courage. We pray, Lord, against the flesh that wants us to sort of back out of this, to, to let the anxiety win. We pray against the enemy who hates us, hates the fact that the church is gathered right now under the name of Jesus and is gonna swing punches left and right. We pray for steadfastness and courage and faithfulness that we would not lose sight of the mission that you've called us to, Lord. And we we trust that every step of the way, your spirit is ministering to us, giving us what we need to glorify you. And so just like the Israelites, we pray, Lord, strengthen our hands for this good work. Give us prosperity by your grace for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.